0: Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. I'm Marvin Hickman and today we're going to talk about two very important relationships in Adland. One that has just begun and another that has suddenly ended. For more than a decade, Adam and Eve DDB and the John Lewis Partnership have become synonymous, with their Christmas ads gaining critical acclaim on these shores and abroad. They've set the benchmark for Christmas advertising for many years, creating ads with adorable characters that were emotional, fun, and enduring. But Adam and Eve, DDB, and John Lewis are no more. Campaign's editor-in-chief, Gideon Spanier, will join us shortly to explain why they have split up. A bit later on, Essence MediaCom Global Chief Executive Nick Lawson will join the podcast to discuss why MediaCom and Essence have decided to unite, forming a new agency proposition, although it's not quite that straightforward in the UK. Nick will share the lowdown on that new relationship and why it matters to this industry. But before all that, I want to talk about agency pay. It's been a perennial problem that was exacerbated last year, and we have some insights from agency bosses as well as research from the Advertising Association on pay and how agencies can retain talent. To discuss this, I'm joined by Campaign's Premium Content Editor, Nicola Merrifield and Sharon Lloyd-Barnes, the Talent and Inclusion Lead at the Advertising Association. Welcome to you both.
1: Hi. Hi. Good morning.
0: Good morning to you, Sharon. Nick, you recently wrote an interesting piece on agency pay from the AA's research and its importance in attracting and retaining staff. We know that churn rates at agencies are at historical highs. They've been so for some time now, hovering around the 26% mark, but I hear whispers from the industry where it goes as high as 35%, sometimes even 40%. Can you explain what you learnt about agency pay in the AA's research and how it's impacting the industry?
2: Sure. Yes. Yeah, so this is a major report from the Advertising Association called Investing in Our Talents Future that came out last month. Um, and it is looking at all, all different parts of, of the sector. And it found one of the major barriers to recruitment retention is pay, as you said. So um, one of the things um, I actually found is a sentence from the, the piece itself is some people are choosing to leave the industry due to store progression and low salaries when compared across industries. And the A says that's something that needs to be urgently addressed. Um, And it also speaks about lack of training and development, and we can get onto that later. But pay seems to be the most alarming issue. So um, the stats around this are that once adjusted for inflation, annual advertising spend has increased by 42% since 2011. But at the same time, average annual advertising salaries have decreased um, by 4% and marketing salaries have decreased by 10%. There's also this other... Um, side to it, which is that while the average salaries in marketing and ad- advertising have gone down, um, average sal- salaries across all industries have been going up. So there's kind of this thing about around competition and potential recruits going to other sectors. Mm. And then the impact is, uh, well, there are some figures that suggest the impact. So um, Adlans had many people leaving, but particularly in the past few years. So the number of people working in the sector has um, fallen by 14% between 2019 and 2022.
0: Yeah, which is quite a large shrinkage. I mean, part of it, I guess, is to do with the pandemic and people perhaps just having a change of heart in terms of what they want to do in their careers. Uh, part of it is probably you know wanting to explore different opportunities and that sort of stuff. I spoke to some agency leaders who agreed to share their views under the condition of anonymity. Our producer Navpal, is on hand to read out comments from three agency leaders about pay pressure.
3: In the last 18 months, there has been a huge pay pressure with the expectation of inflation matching pay rises. People have been moving around or leaving the industry and it's tough to manage. Even when agencies want to pay up, there is a time lag between pay rises to staff and when you can renegotiate fees and pass on some of that pain to clients. The industry's entry-level pay is not great versus what grads can get at our clients – It's no surprise that young talent gets trained up at agencies and two or three years later they go client-side or tech firms. When graduates leave uni, we tend to overhire at that low salary level, rapidly promote with pay increases, and you are always playing catch-up. We need more competitive entry-level salaries across the industry. Last year was a nightmare. I don't know if it was low pay or the bidding wars driving it. It's not just tech companies poaching our talent, there has also been inter-agency bidding. One agency was targeting all of our Bame talent. I've never seen it like this in 25 years with such a bidding war on the employee side.
0: So last year was tough on the pay and retention front, but looking ahead, agency bosses are much more upbeat about holding on to talent. Here's what a few leaders had to say about the outlook.
3: I definitely think the pendulum is swinging back. We are seeing slowdown in churn and are filling more of our gaps. There is less bidding because agencies and groups are now being a bit cautious on hiring and promoting for the next few months to see what the numbers will look like. It's less of an issue now. Last year we saw the extremes of inflationary pay, but it was a demand and supply thing. We've seen that slow and also with what's happening with tech companies, it means our retention is stronger. The cost of living crisis is still real, but it's less of an employee's market and our staff are looking more for development and stability. Retention is good for us, but not always for our finance departments who factor in churn in their budgets.
0: Nick, clearly there is a tension between employee expectations and what agencies can reasonably afford to pay. What are your thoughts on what agency bosses are saying?
2: Uh, well, yes, obviously um, what's happened you know, as a result of Lots of movement um, among different positions is that inflation uh, in salaries went up because that's what you had to do to be able to attract staff. Um, but then, of course, that was more last year. And now, you know, currently we're in this situation where employers are dealing with financial pressures themselves. So it's going to make it difficult to provide these kind of, you know, blanket pay rises to help the staff with the cost of living and yep. in general to attract talent. Um, it's a point that the AA made in its um, in its report that we talk about on the podcast. But the Advertising Association does say that a radical long-term rethink on salaries is still needed. Mm. Um, I was discussing this in my column a, t- a little bit. Um, and the idea that a long-term goal for better pay has to be there um, because this is a problem that's been building for a while for for junior staff in particular. So even if those huge increases can't be made now, Maybe employers can be thinking about what they can do to put plans in place for that in the future. There's a suggestion by the AA that um, if you think about there's a vicious cycle of if you have fewer staff working um, for you, there's lower productivity. And that means that you're probably going to have a smaller chance of business success and providing potential pay rises. So to try and break that cycle, employers could be investing in training and development maybe instead And then ultimately, that would encourage people to stay in the industry, stay in their jobs, increase productivity, and then long term can can help um, achieve the goal of of better pay across the sector.
0: Mm. One of the interesting comments, actually, when I was talking to an agency leader about this ahead of the podcast, uh, they were making the point that this industry tends to overhire at that sort of junior and entry level, but on very low salaries. And this leader suggested or thought maybe, maybe it's time to rebase it. Maybe it's time to actually lift the lower end of the salaries higher and get sort of more qualified or skilled talent to come in rather than overhiring en masse. Um, I know that some groups, for example, and I think Publicis is one of those, have actually lifted their entry level pay quite substantially in the past couple of years so it feels like an issue that groups and agencies are very well aware of but you know it's one of those things agencies suggest that it needs to be an industry-wide thing rather than just sort of like one group or one agency does it here or there otherwise it feels like it's going to be a perennial issue that's not going to go anywhere anytime soon and when you know the industry does recover in general um, it's probably going to go back to being an employee's market
2: And that's Um, when you're running at ten percent inflation. um, A graduate's, you know, rightly so, is going to be thinking about who's paying them the most. Um, That's just a really sensible decision to to make when you're living somewhere probably as costly as London as well. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense that agencies are looking at raising their salaries. But of course, um, yeah, unless the whole sector does it, the problem will remain. Yeah,
0: it's an interesting point as well. In terms of hybrid working, I think it's something that we, we should probably touch upon as well. It, it, London is obviously a very expensive place for yeah, entry level or grads to live and work, especially when it comes to some of the salaries that, that advertising offers. I just wonder, with the whole hybrid working situation, whether we might see more movement to the regions, more talent, being employed in the regions, which I think would be healthy for the industry, but actually, it, it might you know it, it might help in terms of getting more diversity, in, in terms of casting that net a bit wider than some of the traditional pools that advertising fishes in.
2: More diversity outside the London bubble is obviously always going to be a really good idea, um, but if you've got people working remotely. Um, you know, then that does also potentially create problems if you're coming at the entry level and you you need, um, you know, you're you're going to want and need training and development. Mm. And sometimes that can only really be achieved when you're in person um, with your colleagues. So, so there's pros and cons <laughs> to yeah, all of this yeah. um, but I
0: just wonder whether we you, you' make a very good point about you know training by osmosis and, and on the job and that, that's really important especially at that, that younger level I'm just wondering whether we might see more offices sprouting up across across the UK where they will get that and they'll be able to enter the industry um, and and be able to sustain a career and, and, and a life uh, because you know if you' if you're if you're not from London and you don't have, you know, a good support network, it, it's very difficult to commit to a career in London on such a low salary.
2: Mm, and it would be great to see. I mean, you've got broadcasters like Channel 4 and the BBC having tried to do this. So so yeah, if, if it could happen um, more broadly, um, that would be fantastic. And like you say, it would certainly help with the cost of living um, when you're comparing rents in different parts of the country. That's really... Where it becomes very obvious.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we're now joined by Sharon Lloyd-Barnes from the Advertising Association. She led this research and has a lot of insights into what the market is saying. Sharon, I want to bring you into this. Can you provide us a bit of context about why you did this research and what some of the key findings were for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, going back, it was a year ago, um, obviously, we were in the midst of uh, sort of I hate to use the word recovering from the pandemic because I think we still are, mm. but but falling yeah. out of, of all those lo- lockdowns um, in the middle of the Great Resignation, a lot of anecdotal sort of theories floating around. It's like we felt it was our role to really dig into this and find out what the key sort of drivers were. Um, so we, we convened the Talent Task Force. It's made up currently uh, of about 20 of our members um, sort of HR and people leads, but but since we re- released the, the report about two weeks ago, uh, we've got many more people volunteering to be part of it, which is exciting. So it, it does represent the diverse sort of landscape from agencies to media to tech um, and brands as well. Yeah, I guess in the findings, like all of these things, there are many contributing factors, and I think we can't ignore the impact of the pandemic and and people wanting to make you know different life choices essentially. Um, you know whether it's where they live or how they work so it's not just about salaries but I think the salary conversation has been highlighted and we've done this you know uh, the feedback I've had is just even that graph that we've that we've developed just showing that you know the lowering of the salaries over the years against other industries and the increase in cost of living um, and, and add spend um, is something that I think the industry has been crying out for for a while because actually, I mean, I joined the industry 40 years ago and my entry level salary was pretty similar to what it is today. So I, I think, you know, it's not it's not a new thing. It's not. We're, we've just lifted the lid, I guess, and started to do some work on the engine um, uh, as, as to what this very long term issue is for the industry.
0: Some rather alarming stats there that, that you've drawn upon. Uh, I guess the one that sort of stands out for me and probably a lot of people in the industry is just how much um, advertising salaries have either remained stagnant or or perhaps declined versus um, how much money has increased in, in terms of ad spend in the industry. There seems to be a huge misalignment there. What do you put that down to? Where's the money going, and why isn't it going towards talent?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we we still don't know because it's this is early stage of the work, and we're definitely doing some you know, it's ongoing work to dig into this more. But it's so it's hypotheses I will flag. Um, but but generally, there are there two sort of major trends that have that have come along in the last certainly the last decade and longer. Um, there's an increased competition in markets with new entrants, but there's also this, you know, huge increase. Um, in in digital spend, which is probably driving that increase in ad spend, um, so there's innovative new sort of business models, if you like, mostly online driven. And then there's a trend then for businesses to increase their marketing spend around those new business models, and that increasingly is online. So, I mean, I think bank you know, banking apps are a really good example of that. More and more business is conducted on those apps, and therefore the marketing spend is is sort of you know shifted to there, and and tends to be done. By less people, you know, you can get increased uh, marketing uh, activity by less people delivering it. So I think I think there's there's that's one factor and one hypothesis, but there's there's many others. I mean, I think the agency-client relationship is is obviously talked about an awful lot. I think that's there's still an imbalance there with agencies increasingly expected to do more for less. But I think that goes into many more dynamics than just agency and 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 brand or, or client. So it's just that increased competitive nature of our industry. I think there's just an increased demand to do to provide more for less. And, and the knock-on of that is, is, in, is in some cases on salaries. But I think it's, it is worth flagging that it's salary the salary levels that, that we're sort of focusing on here are sort of uh, junior and mid-level. At senior level, advertising salaries are still, compared to other industries, still very good. So I, I think, I think it's, it's, it's worth flagging that. That's where the disconnect is.
2: So um, one of the things um, that came out in the report is that it's been broken down that the average advertising salaries declined by 4% while marketing salaries went down by 10% once adjusted for inflation. So do you have any theories about what's behind that difference? I think, again,
1: marketing salaries, it's it's junior to mid-level only. So I think we've just got to caveat that. And I think that probably accounts for, for much of the difference because, as I say, senior people are paid... Better, but also I think the marketing definition. And we know that from our trust, you know, ongoing trust work. Ma- definition of marketing and advertising is very, very broad, um, and actually that those stats of sort of you know three to four hundred thousand people working industry sort of indicates that 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 covers everybody from the working the big global brands to the much much smaller SMEs, and I think that will have an an impact on these salary levels as well.
0: I want to touch upon some of the other findings from your research. In terms of size of the workforce, you've noted that since the pandemic, it's decreased by 14%. Um, firstly, is, is that purely just down to the pandemic or are there other factors? And do you think the industry will return to pre-pandemic staffing levels?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are definitely other factors because Brexit kind of got lost in the whole, the, 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 you know, when the pandemic started, we, we'd only just triggered Brexit. So I think that's had a massive well, we know that's had a massive impact on on the incoming talent. Um, you know that's something we're working with government on helping us. You know, be able to access global talent and, and continue our position as a, as a global hub for for creative excellence. Um, so there's there's the Brexit thing. There's the great resignation, as we alluded to earlier, about you know just people making different life decisions. I think we've all been um, you know sort so just shocked into reviewing everything in in a in a. A very universal way, um, and so you know, better work-life balance, the impact of stress on your health, even just location and working geographically in different places. um So, so there's there's many, many more factors. And as I say that there's lots of work for us to do, and we've, we've got another all-in census coming out next month, which will actually look into this because initially it was a an inclusion survey where we asked people how they identify and how they feel about where they work, but we've now introduced questions around exactly this so we can find out if you are thinking of leaving the industry in the next two years and it's not you're not thinking of leaving because of a lack of inclusion what you know which of these factors could it be um and and we're asking questions around all of those things just just to get that data
0: now another um common gripe that that i i hear from agency leaders in recent years has been that tech platforms um tend to offer much better pay packets and, and staff tend to gravitate towards them. I'm just wondering, now that we've seen a lot of sweeping cuts at some of these big tech players, almost universally, actually, do you think that could have a positive impact in terms of agencies being able to attract and retain more of their talent?
1: Yeah, well, there's sort of two parts to that, because obviously um, there's, there's no doubt that tech salaries are, are you know, Uh, are attractive and there's great sort of benefits um, as well that are part of those packages but actually every part of the industry not just our industry every part of the economy is demanding digital and data skills so demand is really high for those you know across the board and just talking before about how different business models are evolving and going more and more online and using digital you know that, that that need is there across the board and also we saw and heard anecdotally from the task force from the HR leads in that group that it's 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 not as binary as as tech platforms poaching. We're sort of all poaching from each other, and actually those very inflated salaries were being offered agency to agency as well. Uh, so it wasn't exclusively, um, you know, going that going that route. There was sort of, you know, n- not necessarily over promotion, but people being offered jobs um, in a couple of rungs up from where they currently were on thirty percent more. So so that that's an interesting um, aspect of it. But I think in terms of The cuts, it depends absolutely on where those cuts are. I mean, we haven't really seen conclusive evidence that it's all in the advertising parts of those or functions within those platforms. So it depends where the cuts are being made. Um, But because of the the demand for digital skills, everybody just needs to be really proactive in recruiting that talent. because it's it's required in every business,
2: and um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier and pointed out is, that is around junior staff. The the research that you've conducted that's really where the poor pay levels are being felt in the industry. So I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about you know what kind of impact that's having on filling those um, you know entry level roles, and and how is the talent pipeline then affected um, you know for future planning and also the diversity of the workforce.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's the thing because obviously there's a huge. A, a, D&I and improving representation across our workforce is top of the agenda for so many of our uh, stakeholders. Um, and I think this is where one of the huge barriers is. It's been identified a long time ago. I mean, there's many, many businesses doing great things to attract talent from outside London, you know, helping with housing um, and, and having almost like bursaries to, to be able to access London if you you know don't come from here. Because that's one of the big barriers is if you, you don't Come from here and already have somewhere to live, i.e., with family. Um, it's 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 really challenging. I mean, Kratos, you know, the industry think tank, has done some work around this, some analysis. Um, and someone working at a junior level in our industry, living in a flat share in London, is left with just twenty five pounds a month to live off, um, which is, you know, really stark. It's a really stark number, um, and I think that's only ever going to have an impact, not not just on. Talent from different backgrounds, but but on any young talent that you're hoping to, to, um, to attract into the industry who doesn't live in London or or have somewhere to live. So, so I think you know, presenting all the stats and the data as we have, I think it's been a uh, you know really useful sort of starting point because up until now I think we've just had these anecdotal um and as I say, keen to flag that very some really great things are being done to tackle it. But I think collectively as an industry, we really need to work together to 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 accelerate how we tackle this, um, because because it is a real block in the pipeline, obviously.
2: And obviously, can't ignore that um, trying to tackle this at the moment means also factoring in that we're in the middle of uh, an economic downturn. So how difficult is it going to be for industry employers to pay their staff, particularly at the junior level, more during this time? Yeah, well, I mean, very. It's, uh, you know, the, pr- the
1: pressure is, is coming from all sides. But I think what's really, um, you know, we, we, we must remember that in good times and in bad, because we've had many recessions and many of us have lived, lived and worked through them, um, the, the competition for, for talent is always there. Um, and actually, we, we often come up with very creative solutions when we're, at, you know, when we're challenged the most. And so I, I, th- I think businesses will work it out. Um, you know, when, when I think at times like this, we obviously value great talent even higher and so we'll find a way forward, I'm sure. But again, it goes back to just working collectively uh, rather than against each other.
2: Sure. I mean, and aside from pay, obviously, we spent a, a lot of time, um, you know, talking about that because it's it's so pertinent. But the report also found that there are challenges around the lack of awareness of advertising and marketing as career choice um, for new entrants, um, as well as, the, um, you know, the issue of hybrid workplaces and, and how Adland can make sure that um, staff don't become isolated so what what's the AA doing to tackle those things as well and and, and also what can the industry do well we, we've been talking for a while now a few years about you know
1: advertising advertising um, it seems really obvious but it's a bit like Alessandra our, our president said at, at the lead summit a couple of weeks ago you know often cobblers children have no shoes and I think that's it's just a really good example of the fact that you know we haven't yet done that to promote uh, you know an exciting dynamic yeah, just a brilliant career option. Advertising is so so. That's that's a first priority, and you know we've been talking to to members for it about it for a few months now, and there's just so much enthusiasm. Um, you know, people wanting to lend their skills and expertise uh, and services to to make that work. And I think you know there's a campaign recently that BAFTA did for exactly the same job to kind of promote the many different the diverse roles and functions within film and television. And it's something like that that we want to emulate, really. It just it it, it ticks all the boxes from showing how representative we are, you know, that it, we have roles for talent from all backgrounds, um, and you know that the, there are very definitive sort of career pathways. So I think if we can find a way of promoting that in an ad campaign, um, the industry is very much behind it already. So it's kind of watch this space on that one, um, and I think that it would have a really sort of win-win effect as well, because obviously you want to attract young and older talent that that doesn't currently work in advertising, but but I think it would have the knock-on effect of really cementing and maybe reinvigorating people that already work in the industry because retention is which we haven't really touched on is is a huge issue for us. And I think just to to have a campaign that really, you know, reminds us of why we're all doing the jobs that we do and see it more as a whole. And, and perhaps even inspire us to do, you know, to, to shift shift lanes a bit and do something else within the industry um, would, would would have, a, you know, obviously it's a secondary impact.
0: Sharon, final question for you. Given the research that you've conducted, and, and also see conversations that I, I know you probably have with your members um, on an ongoing basis, what would be your key message for the industry?
1: Lean in. <laughs> um, we, we've already seen with All In and with Adnet Zero, which are obviously our climate and our inclusion initiatives, that... For for me, coming out of the pandemic, the biggest bonus has been collaboration. You know, as I said, we're a hugely competitive industry um, and that's great. But I think I feel what we've seen in the last three years is people um, sort of linking arms and and really helping amplify and accelerate programs that make a difference to people's lives. And obviously saving the planet and making it as, as inclusive as possible are really fundamentally important things to be doing. Um, and the progress we've made in the last couple of years just because people have just lent in and, and and supported these initiatives. So we want to kind of treat this talent workforce and this talent action plan in the same way um, and get, you know, our members, which essentially are the whole industry, um, uh, behind it. Because I think collectively we can really make change. Um, and, I, and I think, as we've highlighted today, there's some areas that need immediate attention, Um otherwise we are kind of stuck.
0: Fantastic. Sharon, thank you so much for joining the campaign podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now I'm joined by Gideon um, Spanier, who broke the story about Adam and Eve DDB breaking up with John Lewis. Gideon how did you find out about this?
4: Well, I don't want to make it sound too dramatic, but someone gave me a call. Uh, this is on Tuesday afternoon, saying there's an all hands staff meeting at Adam and Eve DDB's office in Paddington, and it's about John Lewis. And we hear they're reviewing. Mm. So that's the first we heard of it. And of course, our job then is to start calling the relevant, uh, you know, organisations. In in this case, uh, John Lewis Partnership and uh, Adam and DDB. And uh, by the time we were making our calls, you know, it was around five, six in the evening. And, you know, you have to have a little bit of patience. You can't expect, especially when you don't know all the facts, an instant response. Uh, and then today is Wednesday and uh, around 10 a.m. we broke the news. And, uh, you know, the, the headlines were that John Lewis Partnership announced they were doing their creative agency review and they praised Adam and Eve DDB and very soon afterwards Adam and Eve DDB came out with a statement saying they had declined to Mm repitch so that's the nub of the story and it's a very big deal 14 years is since Adam and Eve first started working with John Lewis and I, I would say it's reasonable to say it's been the most important client agency relationship in UK advertising in the last decade uh produced some great work and I think really was a standard bearer for
0: great emotional storytelling and taking the story on. Yeah, and, and it's 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 a really good point actually. I, I didn't think this could be understated. It's not just in the UK where this enduring relationship between Adam and Eve um, and John Lewis um, has been felt. I remember when I was covering advertising in Australia for ad news, we would always look out for the John Lewis Christmas ad. It was such an iconic thing. It's it's I would almost say it which and maybe you can disagree with me. It's like the UK's Super Bowl moment.
4: Well, it certainly created a Super Bowl moment because of all the other brands that now pitch Mm. in with Christmas ads. And the account was awarded to Adam and Eve when it was an independent in 2009. And it was actually right in the middle of a financial crisis. And I think there was this sense that the John Lewis partnership and its uh, sort of employee-owned operation – really struck um, the right chord at a time where banks have been very greedy and obviously got sucked into a credit crunch. And the the, the sort of upside was, I think, John Lewis' partnership was a real organisation, a British organisation for the moment. And that that there's no question that it has come under pressure, that model, in the last four or five years, as online has really accelerated. There was a time when I think the John Lewis model really seemed great. And there's just new pressures on the organisation. They had a tough time in COVID because they had a big department store network. Waitrose
0: did better. But, you know, it's tough. Mm. Now, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 8th of February. So, details about why they split up are scarce. And I know that we're going to look and explore and do some digging and probably touch upon this um, in, in a future podcast. I just wanted to end this Particular segment um, by asking you one simple question: What has been your favourite John Lewis Christmas ad over the years? There are a lot, actually,
4: and that's that makes it hard to choose. So I'm going to pick the long wait from 2011, and it was about a little boy who was preparing for Christmas Day, and he was going to get this great gift, but it was a gift to give to his parents and not not for himself, and it was just lovely. And I think it captured something, again, that moment where it was about the gift of, you know, gift giving is something that John Lewis managed to own, I think, as a concept for a long time. And people have complained about the John Lewis ad becoming formulaic. And, you know, it was a mark of these ads that they would get lampooned almost instantly on YouTube. It became an event on YouTube. It made the cover of Private Eye with the bear in the hair once. I mean, really, the key thing about John Lewis is it became part of culture thanks to Adam and Eve DDB. And uh, I'll just say one more thing that, you know, the 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 fact that Adam and Eve DDB has declined to repitch is a big deal. And uh, I don't truly know yet how they feel, but I think we can guess that they feel like this is a very tough moment.
0: Mm. Um, uh, just for the record, my favourite John Lewis ad is the bear in the hair. Um, It brings back a lot of emotions for me um, spending Christmas with my boy who was quite young at the time, actually, and he absolutely adored it. We used to watch it on YouTube on repeat. Um, So, yeah, it had a very special place in my heart. Now, before we jump to to Nick Lawson, um, I'm going to play our listeners, you guys, a montage of some of the best John Lewis ads over the years. We will, of course, discuss John Lewis and Adam and Eve and that relationship a bit more in the future, but for now, just enjoy this. It's a little bit funny.
1: This feeling inside, I'm not one of those who can easily hide. Good time change. See the luck I've had could make a good man turn bad. How
3: wonderful life is while you're in
0: One of the biggest stories in Adland last year was the proposed merger between Group M's Mediacom and Essence. The combined business, which officially launched last week, employs about 10,000 people in 120 offices and is WPP's largest media agency. Globally, Essence Mediacom handles around $21 billion worth of media billings, and some of its clients include Adidas, Google, Mars, PlayStation, Procter & Gamble, and Coca-Cola. Essence MediaCom promises to bridge brand and performance under one roof, combining the traditional media buying and planning skills and scale of MediaCom with the digital and data know-how of Essence. To discuss the merger process and what it means for the industry, I'm delighted to be joined by Essence MediaCom's global CEO, Nick Lawson, and Campaigns UK Editor-in-Chief, Gideon Spanier. Welcome to you both. And Nick, you're joining us from New York, aren't you? And it's it's, it's quite quite early over there.
5: It is very early, yeah, you've got me up very early, so I'm drinking, uh, I'm drinking coffee. I haven't even had a chance to have breakfast. That's how early you've got me up.
0: (laughs) Well, sorry for getting up so early in the morning. We we are really grateful that you've joined us. Now, you've been at Mediacom and its predecessor, the media business, for, well, over three decades now, isn't it? The past nine of these, past nine months, I should say, you've been very much focused on the Essence Mediacom merger. Can you take us through how the process has gone and some of the challenges you've had to overcome bringing these two businesses together? It's a good question, actually. Um,
5: I would say on paper... It was um, always a good proposition. So I think logically, merging, uh, for, for many reasons, merging Essence and Mediacom were, was a good proposition. We shared a number of different clients. I think our skills were very complementary, and nothing had really been done on that scale, merging a what you would call a, a big media agency with a pure play digital agency, which Essence wants globally. There, there was no challenge in the sense that everybody really bought into that vision and why it should be done. But then, of course, you've got sort of practical and people considerations which you have to work through. And mergers are always challenging, as you say. I mean, I would say both from a practical sense and a cultural sense. Plus, of course, you've got to keep the trains running on time as well. You know, we've all got our sort of day jobs while we get on with it. And I think we did a few things right at the start, I guess. We made some quick, clear decisions on our global leadership team, um, which I think was an enabler for a lot of the things that followed that uh, internally which meant we could really take our time choosing the right people to take along that journey but also it helped with a lot of practical decisions like platforms market leadership organization structure which buildings we sit in stuff like that and of course culturally i think both agencies really shared a people-centric vision i guess and i think we also made the choice that we weren't going to become a, a slightly different version of mediacom or a slightly different version of Essence. We really wanted to build something new together. And I often think people are at their best and their most inspired when they're really trying to change their world or the agency that they live in for the better. And I think that because we were building, because we wanted to build something new with uh, Essence MediaCom, I think that really helped build trust and has enabled um, us to sort of build a culture of, I, I guess, mutual curiosity, creativity, innovation, all of those things that you'd expect in an agency. And I think uh, it's been pretty pretty humbling, actually, how, how both sides have really come together and how both sides have really um, respected each other.
0: Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting point that you make about culture. Often when you see mergers and acquisitions, one of the main reasons why they don't work if, when they don't work is due to really poor cultural fit. And that, now, can you sort of share some insights in terms of how that went, trying to marry those two cultures up, particularly in markets where you had one agency that was quite a lot larger than than the other?
5: You know, I guess when you look at the two agencies, if you were to take two personalities, I would say Mediacom is a very sort of, previously, and obviously this is where I come from and worked for well over sort of two decades, is a very driven, quite um, uh, expressive culture. And I think Essence is a much more analytical, a bit more introverted um, culture. They're two quite different personality types. And of course, when you put those two things together, I think the key is really to learn at that point for both kind of cultures to see what 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 the benefit you get from each other and i think what we what we did really well was understand each other from those two points of view one of the things we've put in place has been has been some listing and a cultural program which uh, called um communication dynamics which really understands how those two things play out so how do you really hear something that comes from a a different point of view from from you and I think it's also understanding what both sides really bring to the, uh, the picture. So the vision uh, right from the outset, which was to combine, I would say, a global, empowered media planning agency like uh, Mediacom with a kind of tech savvy, um, performance led, data driven, analytical agency like Essence. And the magic happens really when you put those two things together.
0: Yeah, when Gideon and I spoke to Christian Jewell, the global CEO of Group M last year about the merger, he said it was very much a case of, you know, he wasn't trying to find efficiencies by doing this. I'm just curious, when you've gone through that process and you've merged these two teams together across the world, have there been any sort of major staff cuts or anything like that? How's it really impacted the teams?
5: It was, it was never an efficiency play i think it was a simplification play certainly and it was an opportunity play and as i say the opportunity was we shared mutual clients essence always struggled for a footprint we had a footprint i think you could see how powerful that combo could be globally you know we're in 45 plus countries all across the world you combine that with brilliant digital now performance you can see what the opportunity creates and i think our people our clients um and actually i think you know the industry saw, saw saw the opportunity so and i think as you go through a merger, clearly there i think it was a great fit in terms of clients and in terms of people because we've got two very different types of people that inhabit the agency so there was never really going to be huge efficiencies in terms of the types of people and of course nearly all our people work on clients and they still need to service those clients the back office there are very small efficiencies, I guess, where you've got two people doing exactly the same job. But because we made the decision to make the merger over kind of nine nine months, nearly all of those people would be able to move into different roles within the group.
0: Let's talk a little bit about, about clients. So one of the other things that you obviously would have to manage are, are cases where there might be conflicts between clients. Sure. Um, from both agencies have there been any major client conflicts and and how have you sort of ironed out some of these i
5: think one of the reasons why we were so keen to to do the merger is because we had a great fit client wise so really at a global level we had no client conflicts whatsoever there were some local conflicts namely in the uk mainly for the fact that both agencies are so big so there's bound to be an overlap and there we were really respectful and open about um those conflicts which is why we've made the decision to keep two offices open so you've got essence media Com and essence media Com X.
4: you just mentioned that essence struggled with footprint and i think the messaging from you and uh you know group m has been it isn't a takeover of essence but is there a sense that F- essence never really scaled uh you know everyone knows google is a very big client and uh, just wondering, in truth, is part of this merger a reflection that, if you like, Essence, whilst it's done well and is a great British success story, it hasn't it hasn't really perhaps fulfilled the maximum potential for WPP, a global company. You, you know, Essence is a quarter of the size of MediaCom.
5: I really don't think that's the um, I, I actually really don't think that's the case. I think if you look at Essence's track record and growth record, it, it, it's fantastic and it's second to none. I think it was built out of a very different vision, and that vision was to build, which is essentially what um, some of its competitors are still um, doing today, which is to build out a global hubs, so grow a global hubs, um, and not have a market footprint in every single market, because obviously that's Time-consuming and expensive to do. The opportunity, really, was to was to combine the two, which is work, which is why I think this is a totally unique proposition. Which was to take all of that innovation, all of that performance criteria, the data, the individuals, and scale that globally across lots and lots of different markets. And that's something nobody else has done at that scale in a single agency entity um, before. So I think it was mo- much more about the opportunity rather than. Um, any perceived weaknesses, certainly in Essence. And and, and it certainly wouldn't be working uh, across a client like Google if it, if it had those anyway. So building on
4: that then, because there was also some talk around the announcement of the merger. This is about bringing in brand and performance together at scale under one roof. Uh, but again, just to push it back on you, was there a sense that Essence was a bit of a performance agency that struggled with main media outside sort of addressable digital. And in the same way, Mediacom being a, a brand agency that's perhaps struggled a bit to digitize.
5: I think it's a slightly tired argument that the what you would call the traditional media, media agencies don't do performance or digital very well. The fact is that they do right across, not just within uh, Group N, but all of the holding companies. I think this is about, Um, really about expertise, different types of people, that combination of capability and pulling all of those things together into a single unified structure that really rallies behind um, clients. So again, I, I would say this is about enhancement of what we had because Absolutely, um, Essence did traditional media and traditional planning and comms planning, just as we did digital. I think the, the, the play here is when you put the two together and you put all of those capabilities together, um, that's when the magic can happen, right?
0: Nick, I just want to zoom in a little bit more in terms of your UK operations. When we wrote about the merger last year, it was noted that Essence and Mediacom would operate separately in the UK due to some major conflicts. Um, I guess Tesco would be one, um, Tesco being a Mediacom client and its rival, Sainsbury's, being an Essence client. However, we've also noticed that Essence Mediacom went to market under the new combined brand in the direct line group, media pitch. In the UK, when do you operate as Essence or Mediacom and when is it Essence Mediacom?
5: Essentially, what we've done is we've, got, we've, we've kept a separation between two agencies. So we have Essence Mediacom, um, and Essence MediaCom X with separate leadership, um, and clients, and that's necessary in the UK, really because of the sheer scale of the of the two agencies. Obviously, MediaCom, um, you know, in the UK has been number one in the market for many, many years, and Essence is well inside the top 10. So, and the only shared resources between the two, so they've got separate leadership teams, the only share resources, are kind of back office functions such as um, finance and HR. And that's that's how we separated it, to um, be really respectful of those um, conflicts and to guarantee, uh, and, and to guarantee um, confidentiality.
4: Have you named leaders for those two agencies yet?
5: Uh, Kate Rowlington, Essence Media Comp, and Ryan Storer for Essence Media Comp X.
4: You obviously talked earlier on about having clear sort of leadership The one important person who is no longer in your leadership team but not uh, perhaps going that far away is josh Krichevsky, who you named as your number two global coo but now is actually going off to run group m in emir um does that say anything about essence MediaCom?
5: well i think uh, we should be well, i think it says i think it says a lot about the leadership capabilities within the group i mean josh is And, you know, Josh is a great um, practitioner. He's been brilliant working with me for many, you know, over a decade I've I've worked with Josh. Um, And I think he's going to do a fantastic job in the group. I mean, remember, we're sort of like a big proportion of the group. So he's going to be spending a lot of time on our business. It's not like he's left the company. And I think think he'll really add value there. And I think it's a testament. Obviously, at the time of we're sort of broadcasting this, I haven't – a named a replacement, but I will be doing um, fairly soon, in the next week or so.
4: Um, one other thing, Nick, which obviously there's a, there's a perception that Mediacom is the big one and Essence was the smaller one, but it's not, not the case that absolutely everything within the two agencies was, you know, Mediacom was the biggest. And I think recruitment was an interesting area where the actually... Essence had a bigger recruitment team. Tell us a bit about what you learned about the. You you obviously learned quite a lot about Essence in the last nine months, and if there are any differences, what you have learned from each other.
5: I've been at Mediacom a long time, so you know a lifer, I guess. I've grown up in the company. I've done pretty much every job, so I know what Mediacom's capable of. I've worked with some brilliant people. I mean, we've been your agency of the decade, two decades running. So there's real strength in depth in Mediacom yeah and at the same time though um, we've also built a global network over those two decades and a very strong global network so uh, i've never underestimated the power of MediaCom, but uh, working with essence has uh, has really been um has really been an eye-opener i've enjoyed it so much getting to know the talent within essence some of the capabilities within essence um real um Game-changing capabilities, in my view, that when added to uh, added to the power that I think is within MediaCom, really gives me great hope for the future.
4: We're in 2023. Uh, I've imagined that a real test point for you will be: can the new agency win significant client business? So, the what's the new business pipeline like? And is that really going to be the test, do you think?
5: My experience of running agencies, which is um, uh, goes back a fairly long way now, um, is uh, you know business in, business out. I mean, it's a fairly um, – the great thing about agencies, I think, is they're pretty accountable. And I think on one hand, an agency of our scale, we obviously have to defend business on a regular basis. And the aim is to – also win and i guess in a in a um in a market that's going to be challenging this year um it's a it's about taking share as well as adding new capabilities uh, to what you do so both those things are going to be important i would say and we will obviously be judged on that
0: fantastic well nick thank you so much for getting up so early over in the states and joining the campaign podcast
5: thanks guys appreciate it
0: I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thank you, Nicola, Sharon, Nick, and Gideon for joining us, as well as our producers, Navpal and Lindsay Riley. Remember to please visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk if you'd like to keep up to date with all of the going-ons in Adland and also what's going on with John Lewis, Adam and Eve, and Essence MediaCom. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. On behalf of the campaign team, goodbye.